Hello, welcome to the Humble Perspectives podcast. In case you're joining the podcast for the first time, for several months I, Steve Humble, have been reading one chapter each week from For Such a Time as This, One Man's Spiritual Journey, the book that I published in 2018. It has been interesting to learn that some have been reading the book, again in some cases, while they've also been listening to the podcast. Therefore, I will offer a shameless plug. The book is available on Amazon by title under my formal name, Stephen, spelled with a P-H, G, as in Glenn, Humble, as author, both in paperback and on Kindle. I also have some copies at my home, which I could sign for you if you want. Contact me if you're interested at sghumble at me.com. That is sghumble at me.com. In the last episode, I read about our unexpected move from Lexington, Kentucky to Winchester, Kentucky, where I had been working with some friends from Lexington Covenant Church to plan a new church. This week I'll be backtracking a bit from where last week's episode ended in order to tell about some of the things that developed in my life and in the church during the first years of our sojourn in Winchester. Now, chapter 23, New Beginnings. From the beginning, Bill Kamenich and I, along with Mort Trimble, sought to work as a team in leading Winchester Covenant's development. Not too long after we moved to Winchester, Rick Beach also began to meet with the team. Rick and his wife Margie had begun to, had begun to join in our Sunday worship gathering at Hannah McClure Elementary School during our very first month of meeting there and had soon become part of the church family. For several years, among my friends who were leading churches, there had been a great deal of emphasis on clarifying the mission and vision of our churches in written form so that we could develop plans and strategies. Therefore, I worked hard to develop written materials from which I hoped to help our team clarify our vision during our times of planning. There was some value in this, I think, because we talked about what we believed and about the way we thought God was leading us to build together. Although we eventually agreed on certain statements, I was not a very effective leader when it came to turning the mission and vision, the big picture, into actual strategies and plans, that is, steps, on which we consistently followed through. We did eventually agree on a vision statement that, with some modifications over the years, does capture something of our heart and intention through the years. For those who have the book, I'll add a note here. There are a number of appendices at the back of the book, and the copy of this vision statement is found in Appendix 6. It seems to me now that several of those early documents may have represented my vision more than our vision, but the time I spent in this effort was worth it as a tool to help me clarify what was in my own heart concerning the church. For example, in the course of one of my attempts in 1992, I came up with the motto, Equipping People to Fulfill Their Destiny. 
although a few years later we would begin to use building for the generations to come as our church motto, the first effort really did capture what was in my own heart, as revealed in this 1992 statement of my personal sense of call. Quote, I am called to aid men and women to know God, teaching them to think his thoughts and live according to his ways, and equipping them to fulfill the purpose for which God created and redeemed them. And in this process, encouraging and leading them to grow together into a covenant people who visibly live out the rule of Christ. Also in 1992 and 93, I began to write a paper that I titled The Church in Our Time. The first section of this paper, which by the way is available as Appendix 7 in the back of the book, the first section of that paper still quite accurately captures the big picture of what I think a church community needs to be. But I bogged down on the second section in which I attended to write out the specifics that we needed to work on if we were to become such a community. Then, unexpectedly, the Lord gave me four pictures that represent the church's nature and mission. Now, I'm a word person, not a visual person. That is, I think in words, not in pictures. What I read typically sticks in my mind far more readily than what I see. I am not given to visions. However, as I was wrestling with how to describe my vision for the church, one day these four pictures concerning Christ's church came sharply into my mind. Before I begin to read about them, let me say also that if anyone has the book, those pictures along with outlines that I added in 2015 are also appendices eight through 11. The first picture was of a seed that was buried in the ground and then germinated, sprouted, grew into a plant and reproduced a number of seeds which were either replanted to multiply again or were ground into meal and baked into a loaf that could be broken in order to feed people. I realized immediately that this picture was related to Jesus' words about himself and his followers in John 12, 23 to 26, and also to his parables about the sower and the wheat, the sower and the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13, 1 to 43, and to the parable of the seed growing in Mark 4, 26 to 29. The church started as the one seed, Jesus multiplied into many seeds through Jesus' death and resurrection. The seeds do not exist for themselves. Either they are ground together and formed in one loaf to be broken in order to feed others, or they are multiplied through the death and resurrection process. The second picture was of a vine spreading its branches out to neighborhoods, workplaces, recreational venues, and all around the world. This picture I understood to be related to Jesus' identification of himself as the vine and his followers as, as the branches to be found in John 15. It also was connected to Old Testament passages such as Psalm 80 and Isaiah 5, as well as to the parables Jesus told about vineyards such as the one in Matthew 21, 28-46. The church, according to this picture, is a living organism which, starting from the one trunk, 
spreads its branches everywhere so that the fruit is available for people to taste and see that the Lord is good, as Psalm 34, 8 says it. The third picture was different. I saw in my mind an actual picture, a National Geographic photo of an Amish barn building that I'd seen as a child. This picture pointed to the reality that the church is God's community, a spiritual family made up of families within which single people also find family. This extended family exists to reveal and to share God's love through serving. The fourth picture was of the broken loaf and cup of wine, that is, the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. I understood the picture to represent the church as a worshiping community, a holy priesthood. See 1 Peter 2, 4-5 and verse 9 in that chapter. It represented the people of the new covenant offering themselves to God as a living sacrifice, Romans 12.1. Almost 25 years after I first saw these pictures in my mind, I am more convinced than ever that they suggest essential realities about the church that Jesus promised to build, Matthew 16:18, and that they are especially pertinent to the life and witness the church needs in these present times. Pause to note that when I wrote this, it was 25 years. Now, I wrote in 20, this chapter in 2017, um, now I think that these are even more pertinent. So to me, these pictures are really, really important ways in which the Lord showed me that the church needs to be growing and seeing itself and presenting itself in the times in which we live. Okay, back to the book. Not long after we moved to Winchester, our friend Tim Mitchell and his wife Susan stopped by our home to visit. As was typical in our relationship, Tim and I began to talk about the books we'd been reading. Tim also brought a gift, a book by Jordan Bages, B-A-G-I-S, J-I-S, B-A-J-I-S, titled Common Ground, An Introduction to Eastern Christianity for the American Christian. It would be hard to exaggerate the impact that Tim's gift had on me. The first two chapters challenged the way I had been taught to think about Scripture as authoritative. What I read seemed at first to undermine its reliability. But as I read on into the third chapter, I began to think that the Eastern Orthodox way of thinking holds the Scriptures in just as high a place, if not even higher, than they had been in mine. Bages book opened my eyes to a different way of understanding, quote, the tradition, unquote. That is, the teaching, whether written or spoken, received from Jesus and the apostles. See 2 Thessalonians 2.15, 2 Thessalonians 3.6, 1 Corinthians 11.2, and Jude 3. This tradition has come down to us in Scripture through the church. That's how we got the Bible. It's through the church. This book struck chords from my past exposure to the journey of Peter Gilquist, Jack Sparks, and others who had started as campus crusade workers 
and eventually had become part of the Antiochian Orthodox Church, one of the self-governing churches under the Eastern Orthodox umbrella, that is. Eventually, I made personal contact with Jordan Bages by contacting the publishers of Common Ground, only to discover that he had been a member of the Work of Christ community in East Lansing, Michigan. The Work of Christ was one of the communities in the Association of Communities of which Servants of the Lord had been a part. Jordan also, it turned out, had been associated for a season with Peter Gilquist and his friends before they joined the Antiochian Church. Jordan and I became friends and we stayed in contact for several years. I began to read more and more books about orthodoxy and books by orthodox authors. So great was the influence that my wife and some of my friends became concerned that I might join the Orthodox Church myself. I can't say that I never thought about doing so, but I didn't think about it seriously for three primary reasons. First, the Lord had established me in covenant relationships with members of His body, and I was fully confident that if Orthodoxy was God's plan for me, then He would confirm that by leading my covenant brothers in that direction also. Second, Jordan Bages, who had an Orthodox heritage himself and had actually studied at St. Vladimir Seminary in New York under some of the great contemporary Orthodox men of God, whose books I was reading, had begun reading, Jordan shared with me his assessment that the Orthodox Church is truly Orthodox in its teaching or doctrine, which is grounded in the apostles and the early church fathers, but that the structure and practice of the Orthodox Church has moved away from the practices of the apostles and the early fathers beginning in the fourth century. The third thing was that I did not have peace about the place given to Mary in Orthodox liturgy and prayer. The book Common Ground, however, began what has become an increasingly helpful shift in my point of view, having helped to shake me out of a worldview that had, has been far more influenced by Enlightenment rationalism than I had ever realized. Additionally, Bages' book fueled my interest in the early church fathers and the written material from the first few centuries after the apostolic period. It also led me to several excellent books by Orthodox authors. One of the most important of these was Alexander Smemon, whose book for the life of the world, Sacraments and Orthodoxy, although written from an Eastern perspective, seemed to me to connect with things that I had learned earlier from Francis Schaeffer's work. Several of Smemon's books were of value, but none more so than the journals of Father Alexander Smemon, 1973 to 1983. I see that in the footnote I said that was published in 1970. Uh, couldn't have been, it must have been 1997. I don't have the book in front of me. But his journals weren't found till after he was dead, and they were published nearly 20 years after that. And um, Uh, he died in 1984 or 83. Ironically, he died the same year that Francis Schaeffer died. Back to the book. In his journal entries, I discovered 
the inner life and thoughts of a brilliant and highly trained scholar who was grounded in real life. Smemon seemed to have been deeply aware of God in whatever he might have been doing, whether talking with his wife, walking in the rain, taking note of a garden, conversing with Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the famous Russian exile from communism, whether he's meeting with theologians or participating in a worship liturgy. There simply was no separation. The heavenly or spiritual realities were fully present in this material reality for him. I had no idea that Western dualism had been so deeply ingrained in me and that the unseen realities were that disconnected in my thought from what I saw with my eyes and picked up with my five senses. John Zazulis, another Orthodox author, also had a significant impact on me. His book, Being as Communion, Studies and Personhood in the Church, which Jordan Bages recommended to me, was challenging to read, to say the least. I'm quite sure I didn't understand it all, but even so it helped make a fundamental difference in my understanding of the Trinity and of him, human relationships. Although I can't remember Zazulis' words exactly, I came to realize in a far deeper and more real way than before that the one true God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing in such a profound communion of love that the three persons are one being. The personhood of each is realized in that love. Likewise, we humans can realize our personhood fully only as we are united to God and one another in God's love by grace and thus share in the communion of the Trinity. Clearly, this reality is far beyond my comprehension, let alone my ability to communicate about it clearly. My inadequate comments are doing the book a disservice. However, being as communion has both changed my perception of God and has also fed my hunger to truly know and love Him, to live in a much fuller communion with God and with the people of God through the reconciliation Jesus has accomplished. Several years later, I discovered that Zazulus had published Eucharist Bishop Church, the unity of the church in the divine liturgy during the first three centuries. This was originally written as his doctoral dissertation in 1965 at the University of Athens in Greece. I found this book as I was preparing a paper on the subject to read at one of the meetings of Kingdom Ministries International, the network of church leaders of which I was a member. We had been seeking to recover the full meaning and biblical use of the Greek word ekklesia, which is commonly translated church in English versions of the Bible. For a long time I've been saying, the church is not a building, and it's not a meeting. The church is the people of God, all those who put their faith in Jesus and follow him. Zazulus' book challenged my statement because he showed that, according to scripture, the word ecclesia actually does refer to the people of God, especially when they are gathered together as a kingdom assembly, as in 1 Corinthians 11.18, or Matthew 18, 16 to 20. In 1993, Thomas Nelson published the Orthodox Study Bible New Testament and Psalms. 
It was released in print while Jack Sparks and others were still working on the Old Testament. The notes in this Bible helped me gain some understanding about the Orthodox interpretation of Scripture, and the short articles about key Orthodox teaching added insight. Even more, I appreciated two of the articles in the back of the Bible. One, the Bible, God's Revelation to Man, and I especially appreciated the article, How to Read the Bible. Also, I have often used the lectionary readings that are found in the back of that Bible as part of my daily Bible reading in years since. However, it was the morning and evening prayers that became the greatest help of all. Several years earlier, soon after becoming the leading elder of Lexington Covenant Church, David Reddish had led the elders and wives to take a Christianized version of the Myers-Briggs personality test. Although I'm cautious about such personality tests and other psychologically oriented evaluations, there was one result of that test that I had found intriguing, that my personality was best suited to using a set form of prayer in contrast to the spontaneous prayer that's standard among evangelicals and charismatics in my background. This result piqued my interest because I had desired to be faithful in prayer, but I had always found it difficult to develop consistency. Soon afterward, I came across a little book, Drawing Near, A Guide to Devotion and Prayer, by Kenneth Boa and Max Anders, and I bought a copy. I discovered that I did indeed find it helpful to have a map to follow in prayer. I was able to focus my mind better. Therefore, following the suggested prayer guide left me with the sense that I had actually prayed meaningfully. However, the Orthodox morning and evening prayers in a far greater way seemed to help me present myself before the Lord and to present my intercessions for others to Him. For several years, those prayers provided my daily prayer map and for the first time, my prayer life was consistent for a significant length of time. Although I've had long periods in the years since when I did not use the Orthodox prayers, in several seasons I've come back to that form of prayer, especially in periods when my life in God has needed to be renewed. Not everything was about the books I was reading and that kind of development. There was real life going on. Our son Elijah, who had graduated from high school in 1990, was very active in the Lexington Covenant youth group and often played the bass guitar for the worship team. Therefore, when the rest of our family began to worship in Winchester, he continued to serve our home church. When we actually moved to Winchester, Elijah moved with us and became a part of Winchester Covenant. At age 15, he had begun to work in the summers for the Davenport brothers, men who had moved with us from Minneapolis and had formed their own com company in Lexington, laying block and pouring concrete. After that first summer, Elijah told us that he planned to continue working for a couple years after graduation in order to save money toward college and to learn the skills in that trade. He said, if I learn those skills, I will have something to fall back on if I need it, and if not, I will have the skills that I can use to serve others. I thought that was amazing maturity for a 15-year-old. Soon after we moved to Winchester, that company went out of business. Therefore, Elijah took a job at a Winchester factory, a job that required him to work 12-hour shifts from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. 
and the shifts were spread over different days of the week so that over the course of a two-week period he would work at least once on every day of the week. It was a grueling schedule that left him without much of a life except to work and to sleep. Even on nights when he was not working, he would stay up all night so that he could sleep during the day. It was a great relief for Elijah and for us too, when in late August 1992, Rick and Margie Beach hired him to deliver office products, the job that I would take after he began his studies at Berea College in 1993. Stephanie was a freshman at Lafayette High School in Lexington when we moved. In order to let her finish the school year in the same school, for six weeks she lived as a, in a household with four single ladies who were members of Lexington Christian Fellowship and only came to stay with us on the weekends. It was difficult to have her away from home, but it was also good to see her conducting herself with unusual maturity at such an early age. Our daughter Andrea moved with us and finished that school year in the fourth grade class at Odell Gross Elementary School, where even in 1992, the principal, Mr. Vermillion, had someone open the school day with prayer over the public address system, which was connected to speakers in every classroom. Prayer and the character of the principal were the best things about the school. The level of education she received was not very good. Patricia began to homeschool her again in 1994. There were challenges in our marriage, as there were, are in every marriage, but overall, the next few years were good ones for Patricia and for me. In 1993, one of the ladies in the church who worked for the local radio station encouraged Patricia to apply for a part-time job as a receptionist for the radio station. After she had worked there for about a year, Tom Nickel, owner of a Christian bookstore in the same building as the radio station, asked if she would work part-time for him. Then, in 1995, another woman in our church encouraged Patricia to apply for a temporary job at the University of Kentucky Medical Center. Patricia did apply and got the job. After working as a temporary employee for a year, Patricia became a full-time employee in the fall of 1996 a huge blessing for our family because of the benefits full-time employees received at that time. She could apply up to 5% of her earnings toward retirement and UK would contribute double that amount. Plus, through UK we were able to get excellent health care insurance at a cost much lower than we would have been able to do with me as the sole employee of the church. Beyond that, if she worked full-time as a permanent employee for 15 years, she was able to retire with her full retirement. Once we moved to Winchester, I had begun to attend the meetings of the local association of churches because from the time I was a youth pastor in Minneapolis, I had always believed it important to try to build meaningful relationships with other church leaders in the community. When I started working part-time for Reese Office Products, I could no longer participate in those meetings because of my work schedule. So building those local relationships was slow. I did continue in close relationships with John Meadows, David Reddish, Billy Henderson, and a few other leaders in Lexington with whom I had been praying for a number of years. Soon after we began Sunday meetings in Winchester, David invited me to join in a regularly scheduled time of fellowship with pastors and wives of Covenant Pastors and and their wives in our area. 
These times in fellowship with David and Sandra Reddish, Bill and Barbara Livingston from Louisville, and Dennis and Sheila Cole from Northern Kentucky quickly became a great source of fellowship and encouragement for Patricia and me. Winchester grew, Covenant grew steadily in numbers for the first couple of years until we had about 85 people fellowshipping together regularly. In some ways, this growth was not surprising to me since I had observed that many newly started churches draw people in the beginning. I had known of several which, based on this early growth, had gone into debt to buy or construct a building for worship only to have many of the people live, leave after a year or two of attending. Since we were not inclined to buy a building, we didn't have a debt load, but in the fall of 1993 we did have some people cease to worship with us. That fall we tried a change in meeting place and schedule. I had developed a friendship with the local Episcopal pastor whose church had a fellowship hall with a kitchen and several surrounding classrooms that became available to us on Saturday evenings. It seemed like a far more suitable place than the school we'd been meeting in on Sundays. At Hannah McClure School, we were a small group meeting in a gymnasium that echoed and magnified every noise. Some of our children's ministry classes were actually sitting on the floor in the school hallways. To have a more hospitable environment in which to gather seemed to offset the inconvenience of changing the time of our weekly worship gathering to Saturday evening instead of Sunday morning. Besides, in the early church, in the early church, I had learned, it was common to open the Lord's Day with worship on Saturday evening following the end of the Jewish Sabbath at sundown. So I was excited that having a Saturday evening worship gathering would be a return to the way of our early forefathers in the church. We made the decision to make the change. No strong objections were made when we announced that change. When we met at the new location for the first time on the first Sunday of October, virtually every person who had been worshiping with us came. However, the attendance seemed to decline a little each week thereafter. Conflicts in schedule always seemed to come up on Saturday night for some families. Part of the difficulty, I thought with some frustration, is that people have fixed cultural ideas about what church is and isn't, and they're just not willing to change. Practically speaking, however, our families had a number of young children who seemed to come tired, restless, and even cranky on Saturday evening. It was harder for their mothers, too, after a full day of mothering and housekeeping to come ready for worship. In November, three families who had been with us nearly from our beginning decided to leave the church. That was difficult to say the least. Then the holiday season hit. The Saturday night schedule had proved difficult before, but once the holiday activities began, attendance really dropped. By Saturday, December 18th, it appeared there might be only five or six families left. I had anticipated that not all who came to the church in the early days would prove to be part of the church as time passed, but I had not anticipated this. It was test time. First question, is Winchester Covenant the Lord's church or mine? Second question, if it is his, am I going to entrust the church to his care or am I going to fight for my own success? Third question, is it time to recognize that I've failed and just give up? Once I faced the question, the answer was clear. The Lord had called me to this work. I was responsible to give my best, 
but the outcome was up to him. Everything did not become easy just because I had determined my answer, but at least I was not struggling with doubt. At that meeting on the 18th of December, we adults talked it over. We decided that if those of us gathered that evening were all who remained in the church, we were going to go on seeking to follow and obey the Lord who had brought us together. To top it off, Christmas and New Year's Day fell on Saturday that year, and it became clear that scheduling a service on the evenings of those days wouldn't work at all. Patricia and I did open our home for fellowship on Sunday evening the 26th. Three families came, all of whom had been part of the Minnesota group, which had moved to Lexington. But actually only one of them had become a part of Winchester Covenant. The other two were still part of Lexington Covenant at that time, although both families did eventually become part of our fellowship in Winchester. It was a good evening, fellowshipping together. Each family left us with a Christmas card. When we opened them after they, le they left, to our surprise, they included gifts of cash for us. We were encouraged with the fellowship, and we were helped by the money. The leadership team by that time was Bill, Rick, and I. We called a meeting for Sunday morning, January 9th, to be held in our home, and we sent invitations to everyone who had been identified with our church and who had not told us that they were leaving. We announced that we planned to talk together about our future as a church. To my surprise, at least one adult from every family who had been with us before the changes in October came to that gathering, except one couple who were out of town for a funeral and, of course, the three that we knew had left. Without being asked, Greg Dunneman brought a guitar and we had a time of worship and song, a rich and meaningful time. It was clear in the discussion which followed that we were ready to go on together. We decided to gather in another home the next Sunday, and so it was that for five months we had our Sunday worship gathering in our homes. For the first few months we met in three or four different homes that had space to hold us. Then in April or May we began to meet in our basement regularly. I had been reluctant to schedule all the meetings at our house only because the road is narrow and there's no place to park that doesn't hinder traffic. When we did meet at our house, I asked everyone to pull off the road and into the grass except for the four or five vehicles that could be parked actually in our driveway. I was concerned though about what would happen to the yard if we did that when the ground was wet from rain or snow. However, when it became clear that our house was the best place to gather, we made the decision to do so. After meeting there Sunday after Sunday, every Sunday except one when we had 13 to 15 inches of snow, and after parking in that yard no matter what the weather, five and one half years later, there were no ruts in the yard. It was undamaged. The summer of 1995, although very busy, was a special time in our family. Stephanie, who had been homeschooling using the Christian Liberty Academy curriculum, graduated from high school and planned to enter Berea College as a student that fall. Elijah also came home for the summer to work in the maintenance department at the Clark Rural Electric Cooperative, now called Clark Energy, as he had the two previous summers, and we had a wedding coming up. He and Jenny Nelson had set their wedding date for August 11th. Elijah and Jenny had begun to date during his freshman year at Berea and were engaged the following summer. 
From the first time he brought Jenny home to visit the family, she began to connect deeply with us. In fact, before that visit had ended, I took her aside and said, half-jokingly, Jenny, you don't have to marry Elijah, but you do have to be our daughter. Jenny came to live with us during that summer. Jenny's mother lived in North Carolina and her dad lived in Arizona. Since she and Elijah had met at Berea College, the friends they had in common were from the college. Both also had strong connections with our church family. Therefore, it seemed best to them to have the wedding in Winchester. Jenny and Stephanie were roommates and both took jobs at Quality Manufacturing, a local company that made printer cartridges. Jenny fit right into the family. During the year I had homeschooled Elijah, the year he turned 16, not only did he and I become closer and closer, but his relationship with his mother began to grow stronger the older he got. Of his own volition, he had begun to reach out in friendship to Stephanie, who was four and a half years younger, and a strong bond developed between them. I am convinced that Elijah's influence helped Stephanie to mature more quickly than most do. In the eighth grade, she had written an essay for school about why teens need not rebel, and she lived it. It was that maturity which had given us the courage and trust to allow her to live with adult women in Lexington for six weeks after we moved to Winchester. When she was 15, we hosted a party at which we presented her to our church as a young woman and asked that people receive her as such. With no prompting from us, Stephanie began to reach out in friendship to Andrea, who was nearly five years younger. That summer flew by. I was working in the church and for Reese Office Products. Patricia was working part-time at Bethany Bookroom. Stephanie and Jenny had wearsome jobs at Quality. Elijah not only worked hard at the electric co-op, often outdoors in the summer heat, but he also took a part-time late-night job, mostly washing dishes, at the local Wendy's restaurant. Even with all that, it was a great summer with the family all together and was capped off by the wonderful wedding celebration on August 11th when Elijah took a bride and Jenny officially became part of the family. There was one difficult thing I remember from that summer. Not long after the wedding, it came time for Stephanie to leave home for college. I can only say that it was far harder to, for me to release a daughter to leave than it had been to release a son. For the first time, besides some assignments in school, I tried to express my feelings in a poem. Much music left my house today, it began. The actual poem expressed honest sentiments, even though they probably got somewhat lost in my overworked metaphor of an orchestra. I can say though, those days when Stephanie, these days when Stephanie comes in with her nine children, it is like the whole marching band has arrived. In early 1996, I quit the delivery job and trusting that the Lord would meet our financial needs, began giving myself full time to the work of the church. Our relationships as a church community seemed stable, but I wanted to be more active in trying to reach new people. I began to get involved in the association of churches again. And then Elijah died. What a note to end on. As you may remember, 
I opened the introduction with the phone call we received on the evening of July 4, 1996, summoning us to the hospital where we learned that our 23-year-old son Elijah had died because of a heart attack. In the next episode, chapter 24, I will be sharing about that loss, and yet I'll also share about the way the Good Shepherd met us in the days immediately following this devastating event.